Uh, let's see, we have our handouts here for today, uh, which pick up, picks up where we left off last week. And if you happen to have the color map that we handed out a couple weeks ago, uh, it's the same as last week. I don't know. No, you saved it. We brought it with you. Carried around with you all the time. Uh, we'll be referring to it. If you don't have it, I am uh, uh, giving you a map on the third page of the handout. Now, we were very bad Christian people because we left Paul in jail last week um, and we didn't finish our time to get him out uh, completely anyway. So we will pick up our story in chapter 16, verse 30. So it's kind of halfway down that first paragraph because uh, we had Paul and Silas in jail and they were singing at midnight despite being in severe pain from their beatings and from the um, being held in the stocks so that their legs would cramp and then there was an earthquake and their bonds were their shackles were removed and they didn't escape none of the other prisoners did either <coughs> the jailer thought that he was going to lose his life because his, all of his prisoners escaped and he was about to commit suicide and Paul shouted out in verse 28, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights, rushed in and trembling with fear, this is verse 29, and fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out of the prison and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said... Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. You know, I'm in the publishing business, and there's a lot of books being published, constantly. Sometimes they're repetitive, sometimes they're unique, sometimes they're really well done. And yet when it comes down to how do you become a Christian, how are you to be saved, Paul has it very simply, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He didn't say go to seminary first. He didn't say, you know, have to do all these various things. It was just a very simple answer. Um, are you... All, I'm going to assume that some of you know this, but are you familiar with the Roman road? At least the phraseology of it. Um, if you don't, I'm going to simply write up five verse, first passages on the board in Romans that you can use if anyone ever asks you, what must I do to be saved? You can walk them through this. It's very simple. So, and I have it actually... These verses are just written in the back of my Bible, just so I can refer to them very easily. And then it's also easy to annotate your own Bible, or the one you carry with you in your backpack, your pocket, or even on your iPhone. You can uh, annotate it. 
and just walk someone through these, sorry, it's six verses actually. And it reads like this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. No one is righteous, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Very simple. It's the core of Paul's message. And it makes you wonder if you think of the chronology of Paul's writings and thinking and preaching. By the time he wrote Romans, he'd been doing this for quite a while. And he was able to boil it down in such a powerful and succinct way that people had no, chance, no choice but to either accept or reject. And that's the power of the gospel. Very simple. That's the Roman road. Well, verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house, meaning Paul and Silas, and the jailer took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Now this is interesting. He washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and his family. And I'm thinking, where? Did the jail have a baptismal? I don't think so. Was there a nearby pond or lake or some, some body of water? I mean, this is interesting because this is the middle of the night, remember? The earthquake and all that was at midnight. He's called for the lights. He's saved. He now is washing their wounds. And then it says, verse 34, he brought them to his house and set food before them. He fed them in the middle of the night unless it's a very early breakfast. I mean, I'm just trying to picture this in my mind because this is such a compressed time period. And we know it's a compressed time period because verse 35 starts with at dawn. So we have from midnight to dawn, you have the earthquake, the salvation experience, the jailer taking compassion on these prisoners, washing their wounds, taking care of them, baptizing their entire household and then feeding them. So I, I, you know, it was one of those questions, it's fun because the baptism debate kind of focuses at some point on this little passage going, oh, then did they just have a bucket of water and poured? <gasps> or did they sprinkle them? <gasps> you know, you, you Baptists in the room are all flinching right now. Um, <laughs> But it's just this, isn't that interesting? Because the suggestion is not, not even a hint of what type of water or how much. It didn't matter. It was the act, the, the portrayal of 
the dying and the resurrecting, the consecration, the washing, the cleansing of sins, <coughs> that whole symbolic element. And if you remember when Lydia had come to, to Christ, her and her, she and her whole household were also baptized almost immediately. We have all of this happening, and then this wonderful little end of verse 34. And he rejoiced, the jailer, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. This little word, rejoiced, in the Greek, is agalillo. Or, I'm sorry, ag agalio. Okay? Now, you break it in half, you have the Greek word for much. This isn't the actual word, but it's the derivative of it. And the second word, which is from halomai, word rejoice means much jumping. They were so excited, they're all dancing around, just bouncing around, just like a little mosh pit in their house. They're just having so much joy, they cannot do anything but express it physically. And I wrote here, so when was the last time you jumped for joy? Other than when the Super Bowl halftime program was over. <laughs> that was so bad. Oh my goodness. It was like, oh, you know, anyway. Um, I'm kidding. But it more of, it's more of a case of, have we looked at the joy we have in Christ? Have we actually thought of the word rejoice as much jumping? It's a physical reaction to a spiritual reality that they have washed and they're cleansed and they're overjoyed for what has happened <coughs> excuse me and they have been up all night especially Paul and Silas they never slept they were up all night and now the ministry of this family is changing even the nature of the church because now you have Lydia already established in the Philippian church now you have the jailer and his family being added to the church. You think, well, that'd be a nice end of the story, so we need to go to the next chapter. But no. Yes? Oh, you were go ahead. Oh. Um, I just think it's interesting, unless it's just the way it's translated. Um, it's that he rejoiced with all his household that he had believed in God. And so you kind of wonder, I know it's speculation, that's not biblical at all, but... God, his heart was obviously prepared. I mean, God had been working on it, working on it to that point for that conversion experience to recognize what must I do to be saved? What, what's, this is something at work. So you wonder what's been going on in this household. I know it's not, you know, could it be current relationship between men and women and her children and father, like today, to be so bold and to say, I disagree with you on these points or something, but you wonder if some of the households had heard of Jesus' teaching, had been drawn to some things, mm -hmm. and so when he becomes a Christian, there's at least one or two people in there, I just imagine his wife just, yes, finally, and then they 
they're ready, they're ready, probably more so than he, and he's been very reluctant. And so when it says, he rejoiced with all his counsel that he had believed, it's like, finally. But that's just right. a make-believe story, but it's just interesting. Well, there is an element of what you're saying, <clears throat> because often we look at, at, at this as a, he was atheist, hard, unyielding, uninterested, and then suddenly he's rejoicing. Now that can happen. But what you might be talking about here is often God is working in people's hearts. Who knows? Who knows your kind gesture to someone, a stranger, and the idea of why you're doing this is because I, I love you, I care for you, I believe in, that Jesus loves you, and that seed is planted. And the idea that there is Everything has to be a dramatic, instantaneous conversion. Sometimes the Lord has worked in people's hearts for a long time. Long time. I think of my client who's now passed away, Anthony Flew, um, was known as the world's foremost atheist. <coughs> he debated with C.S. Lewis in the 50s and won. C.S. Lewis went back to his office and rewrote his chapter in the book that became Miracles after losing that debate, realizing he needed to rethink how he was presenting the, uh, the arguments. And Anthony Flew spent 50 years touring the world trying to debate against Christianity, and at the age of 80, he changed his mind. Well, he became a deist. He didn't I was going to finish the story. <laughs> so he wrote a book that called There Is a God. Now, unfortunately, and even in the end of that book, he allowed N.T. Wright to include a chapter on the reality of the resurrection of Christ. But he never actually fully accepted it. He came that close. But at least he said there was a God. But he wasn't quite convinced that there was a Messiah. He was so close. And then he passed away at age 84. You know, it's a tragedy, um, but he was almost convinced. But these, you have to say, so do people stop praying for him? Just give up on the guy? No, he was put in front and face, faced, uh, faced many Christians over the years. And I've read some of the debates, and I've read some of the conversations, and even in the conversations that, uh, in, in creation of the book, is how warm most of the Christians, most, most of the Christians had been to him as a testimony. And he was an adversary, very visible adversary. Oh, never stop praying for someone. You never know. Anyway, the next morning, when it was day, verse 35, the magistrates, remember there were two magistrates who would rule a, a town, a Roman town, <coughs> kind of like co-mayors, I guess, sent the lictors, the police, saying, the, let these men go. And I wrote in my margin, why? Why let them go? I... I it wasn't, that, obviously they didn't know they'd already been out. <laughs> they were in the jailer's house, for the goodness sake. 
But obviously the jailer must have put them back in the jail and they're sitting there, you know, unfettered now. And the police come, lictors say, let these men go. Why would they let them go? What's your thinking? Yeah? Maybe Possibly. Yeah, we mentioned that, last, you were talking to me about that last week, is that maybe Timothy and Luke had said, hey guys, um, there wasn't even a trial. You know, this is not, there's no due process here, maybe. Maybe they felt a beating in a night in jail was enough. You know, show those guys. And notice what it says let the men go. The jailer reported the words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come now and go in peace. And Paul interprets it, verse 37, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and thrown us in prison, and now they throw us out secretly. In other words, just get out of town quietly. Just don't create a scene. Just, just move on. You know, we gave you a good beating and you spent a night in jail and just move on. But Paul says, yeah, um, by the way, we're Roman citizens. Which begs the question, why didn't he say that in the first place? During the trial, when they're raising the sticks, getting ready to hit him, they could have, could have stopped and said, uh, we're Roman citizens, you can't do this. But he didn't. He didn't. I don't have any, even an answer for why. Anything we say is speculation. But maybe it because Paul felt he needed to be quiet and take the beating because he knew it was part of his calling to suffer for Christ. And if he had at that point, he never would have been in jail the jailer never would have heard the word in the way in the manner in which we had it. We don't know. But at this point, Paul refuses to leave, saying, we like it here. Huh? We got a nice, happy jailer who's jumping up and down for joy. He fed us this morning. He makes great pancakes. Um, <coughs> he says, no, you can't suppress us quietly like this. Tell them to come themselves and take us out. So it's basically telling the mayor of the town, uh, no, we won't leave and you have to come and basically apologize and you have to take care of this yourself. The police, the lictors, re went back to the magistrates, reported the words to them, who were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. Because inflicting corporal punishment without due process to a Roman citizen is a serious crime. Very serious crime. You could be jailed, you could be, I don't know if you could be executed, but whatever punishment you had meted out would be then applied to you. So here's another question for you. How do you prove you're a Roman citizen? 
Hmm? A passport? Yeah. A TSA, uh, you know, special pass, uh, you know, uh, your, your, your TSA number. Um, I mean, how, how do you prove it? Can you just say it? I could say, I'm Canadian. Prove I'm not. Could they prove they weren't? Hmm? Could the police prove that they were not common citizens? Yeah, how, how could they prove it? So what manner, does anybody, have you ever looked into that? I mean, I did, I was curious. I thought, did they have passports? Some kind of document. They did have papers. They were called professios, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-I-O, professios, or a registration of birth, like a birth certificate. And they were very small, they could be probably the size of a wallet card for that matter, and they could be carried with your documents or in your papers or your pocket. And all you had to do is produce that. So if you think about it, the statement is, show me your papers, which became a big controversy here in Arizona. What was it, SB, whatever the number was, you know, the show me your papers law, um, which I always think is kind of interesting because the police will ask you for your driver's license and you have to give it to them if you're pulled over. Oh, there is documentation. It's not unusual. And if you think about going through history, even back, you know, think of a lot of it in World War II, but you go back in history further and further back, you find that people carried papers with them. Proof of whatever either citizenship, and if you think about it, it had to be done, especially with all the various kingdoms in Europe. When you travel from one country to the next, or one kingdom to the next, and back in the Middle Ages and all that, those borders were changing every week. I mean, dependent on whether or not that particular, um, you know, group decided to throw their weight to Germany or to Austria or whatever. I mean, you ran into this living in Europe. You had to have your papers with you. All the time. All the time. Really? And we could be stopped and asked for our papers for no reason. I don't have to do anything. Even in France? In France, yeah. Where, did it ever happen to you? Yeah. Really? Just get pulled over and we see your papers. Not just driver's license, but other papers. Didn't do anything wrong, just to check. Yeah, a friend, friend of mine, one of my clients was a missionary in Russia. And they were terrified if they were ever pulled over by the police when they're driving. Because they could hand them their papers. And because they were Americans, they could then be fined for some made-up traffic violation that could cost them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And they couldn't dispute it because they didn't dare go to court. It was part of the corrupt police system is how the police made their extra money. They'd go by, just pull off, pull outside cars and then give them fines and say, well, just give me the money now and we'll let you go. So this idea of having papers is not a foreign concept. It's a, and it's not a modern concept. It goes all the way back to this time. So for Paul, he would probably said, give us our clothes, because they tore their clothes off, remember? And then beat them. He says, give us our stuff. And he probably rummaged through and said, here. And it's like, oh my gosh. We are in so much trouble. 
So, verse 39, the magistrates came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them. The phrase asked them literally in the Greek means kept begging. (laughs) Took them out and kept begging them to leave the city. Please, 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 please. Just go away. Don't don't turn this in. Don't report us. Uh, just, Just go. Just get out. And so they, and notice that Luke is now using the word they, not we. They went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Most scholars believe that Luke was left behind in Philippi, because from this point forward in Acts, until Paul comes back to Philippi on another part of his journey, then the rest of Acts is we. So we have, this is the last time he had we briefly, and then it's back to they. Um, so the idea that uh, Luke did not travel with them is, <coughs> is likely. So the beginnings of the church of Philippi. We had Lydia. We have now the Philippian jailer and their families. So we go to verse seven, chapter 17. This is where you're going to need your map. So if you don't have, if you have your color map, pull it out. If you don't, take a look at the black and white map that I gave you, which zeroes in just on this section. You see in the upper left-hand corner the word Macedonia, which is the name of the country, or the, the region, the state. And under it is the big, bold word Thessalonica, because I pulled this map from a commentary on Thessalonica. To find Thessalonica on the black and white map, it's just to the right of the box in a gray dot, right in that inlet. You see it? And right to the left of it is Berea. And if you go to the right, up three dots, you find Philippi. So we start chapter 17 in Philippi. And we make our way, as it says in the text, now they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So you see the route they're taking. They just went east for 37 miles, then east for 26 miles, and then east for another 30 miles, 34 or 35 miles. So it's in one sentence in Acts, a journey of 100 miles is done in one sentence. Now, I looked it all up, you know, because we can. They were traveling along a road called the Ignatia Way. E-G-N-A-T-I-A. Ignatia Way. And I have a picture of it for you. I'm going to pass this book around. I have a bookmark in it. There's a little picture of the actual road, the Ignatian Way. And if you turn the page, from the bookmark, you'll find a little statue that's found in Amphipolis. So, take a look at the uh, picture of the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way, on your black and white map, and I think it shows on the color map too, is, it's either a dotted line or on the color map, it's a um, a little larger, I think. It's a gray line. 
Yeah, you can actually really see it very well in the, uh, the color map. It's a 700-mile-long road built from the east coast, or sorry, the west coast of Greece, all the way to Byzantium or Constantinople or Istanbul, depending on which era you want to call it. That's a long road. It was built in about 150 BC. The emperor um, back then, don't remember which one, uh, was very. Um, uh, it was he was in. A, he felt it was very important for travel to be quick across their entire empire. So if you think about it, starting in the west coast of. Greece, if you go across, let's see, you're looking at the map this way. So here's Greece, we've got Philippi, Thessalonica, and then all the way over here is the west coast. You cross the sea and you pick up Italy and the Appian Way. It's the famous road in Italy that goes all the way to Rome. So if you think about it, it's a straight shot across from Rome to the Appian Way, across the sea, pick up Greece, all the way to Constantinople. And if you add in the Appian Way to Rome, you're talking over a thousand miles. And the road is very straight. It's kind of amazing. It's about 20 feet wide. Now, I'm not quite sure how wide this room is. Is this room about 20 feet wide, approximately? I mean, you used to be able to count ceiling tiles, but I can't anymore because I don't know what, how big these ceiling tiles are. Uh, these are what, six feet? So 18, yeah, about 20 feet wide. So imagine a 20 foot wide with polygon type rocks, so shaped rocks, packed with hard sand so it was smooth. Now when you see the picture, you go, oh, that would be a horrible road to ride on. Well, it's because the sand is washed away. It's only been 2,100 years. Sand doesn't tend, tend not to stay around. It's not concrete. But by doing that, think of the phalanxes of Rome. They could march six to eight people wide and put thousands of men and chariots and supplies on a road and zip from one end of the, 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 the countryside to the next without having to go up and around all these mountains. They would cut through mountains. They would do tunnels just like today. They really worked it. It's kind of amazing. So the Ignatian Way from Philippi to Thessalonica is the Ignatian Way. And in between are two stops. Am Amphipolis, 36 miles, is a day's walk. So if we were to start from here and walk south 36 miles, where would we be? From this spot. Casa Grande? May maybe halfway to Tucson? We've got in the middle of nowhere wondering where our next water would come. Maybe there's an Indian reservation with a casino that we could do some, I, I don't know, but seriously, you're, up, you're halfway to Tucson. Well, not quite, maybe a quarter of the way to Tucson. That's a long walk. It's a long walk. 36 miles is a long walk. You go the other direction, from Camelback to Bell Road is 10 miles. From Camelback to Anthem is what? 
14, 15 miles if you add in as a crow flies maybe. Hmm? So you're maybe, you're not even to Rock Springs. And you want to walk to Prescott? You're not going to do that today. So actually, these are rest stops. And that's why they're mentioned. Because they spent the night there. The next one, Apollonia, is 26 days. 26 miles, sorry. 26 miles. And you might think, well, they could have gone a little further, but there was nothing between it and Thessalonica. So you stop there. Rest and take up the next day. Apollonia, neither Apollonia or Amphipolis are, are there today. They're just archaeological digs. I mean, we, you can go visit them and see a lot of stones. Um, <coughs> you can see the statue that I passed, that's passing around right now in the book. Um, that's actually, it's, it was recreated about 50 years ago and put on top of a burial mound that was discovered in Amphipolis that is one quarter mile circumference. So think of the size of this burial mound that's in that small area. Um, it was a very, in other words, it was a thriving area, thriving region at the time. And then you get to Thessalonica. Now, when we finish our study of uh, uh, today's study, next week we will actually start First Thessalonians, because that's the chronology. So I'm going to save some of my details about Thessalonica until next week. But for now, I've found out a couple of interesting things. Today, as in the time of Christ, Thessalonica was the second largest city in Greece. I had no idea. It's now called uh, Salonica. S-A-L-O-N, Salon, Ica, or N-I-C-A is Greek for Nike. It literally is N-I-K with the long E, Nike. So it's a place of victory. Thessalonica was named after um, Alexander the Great's half-sister in honor of her. It had been called Therma before that because it was the name of the, um, the inlet it's not a colony, so it's not a Rome away from Rome. It was a free city. So it's a Greek city, not a Rome city. It's very Greek, run by Roman rules. They didn't even have to have a Roman garrison in it, however. It was free. They had been granted their freedom by Augustus, Caesar Augustus in 42 BC. It is the capital of Macedonia. This is how important this city is. This is an absolutely critical city in the region. When we always think of Greece, we think of what? What town? Athens. Athens. Always Athens. I mean, that's the biggest city. It's the capital now. It's everything. But back then, it competed with Thessalonica for prominence because of its seaport and its position on the Ignatian Way. 
you could cross from Asia Minor by boat, get up to Thessalonica, pick up the road, and go west or east on that famous road. Very, very important. They say that every great army from Xerxes the first, Alexander the Great, Antony, Octavian, all of them came through this region. All of them. And it would make sense. They're on their way to do some other, you know, important battle business. But this was a key city. Another way of thinking of it from Paul's standpoint, this is the second city in Europe that Paul has preached. The first city was Philippi. This is the second. Philippi was important, but it was in the shadow of Thessalonica. We as Bible teaching and believing Christians, we always think Philippi is more important because it's a better book of the Bible. You know, it's one we study more commonly. Uh, seriously, when was the last time one of you studied 1 Thessalonians or 1st 2 Thessalonians in a Bible study? Anybody? Exactly. But likely sometime in the last 25 years you might have uh, looked at Philippians. It's a more commonly studied book, so we tend in our mind to put them in this order, whereas in this era, in this region, Thessalonica, it needed the big, bold print. It was an important stop. And when they got there, verse 1 of 17, there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, how is that different from Philippi? No synagogue. No synagogue in Philippi. And what was our theory for that? The Jews were kicked out because of... Because they'd been kicked out because Claudius, Emperor Claudius, was kicking the Jews out of Rome. But Philippi was a colony. They were a Rome away from Rome. So could it be that the people of Thessalonica went, you know, well, we don't, they're not causing any trouble, so we'll leave them alone. It's not an issue. They don't have to necessarily follow the edicts of Rome. They would obviously not go against a, a law, but for Claudius to say, kick them out of every Roman colony could have been announced, but he could not have said, kick it out of the free cities, because they would have said, no, we get to rule ourselves. So there's a, there's a question there. So Paul went in, as was his custom. And you know, every time he went into a synagogue, I think about his first missionary journey and now his second missionary journey. What was the flashpoint in all of the controversy? And all of the beatings and jailings and the, you know, leaving him for dead and being stoned and all that, is that he went into the synagogue every time. And every time, he had a negative reaction from those who would say, we're not, no, you're, you're a heretic, you need to die. You need to go away. But Paul still went, knowing full well what he was up against. That's amazing to me. John MacArthur, like, he categorized it as he had his sermon on these passages lasts for two hours. 
uh, on 17, 1 through 15, and he has an entire section on courage. And he, it's, I mean, he hammered this idea of Paul, knowing full well he was walking into a rough situation. He still went, as was his custom. I mean, this is a terrible illustration, but it would be tantamount to me going into a biker bar <laughs> and saying they're all sinners and going to hell. I mean, that would not go over well. I might not have a good experience uh, physically and emotionally, but I might have one or two that might go, yeah, I'm having a, yeah my life is horrible. Someone has to tell the message. So Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from scriptures. <coughs> Obviously, three Sabbath days suggests he was there at least three weeks, maybe four. Uh, some scholars think he might have even been there longer than that. Um, because we have in Philippians 4.16, um, it says, sorry, 4.15, and you Philippians yourself know that the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with, in giving, with me in giving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So it suggests that the Philippian church actually sent Paul some support money, some help. And if you remember, Paul was a tent maker. We find that in uh, Acts, 13, uh, Acts 18, verse 3. And even in 1 Thessalonians 2, 9, he talks about working day and night. So it could have been he was ministering here, he was doing some work here, maybe he worked from dawn to lunch as a tent maker and then went out and worked the streets. We don't know. But there's suggestions that he didn't just sit around and take love offerings. He was working for a living. But it says he reasoned with them with scriptures. Now here's an interesting little tidbit. The word reasoned is a Greek word. Dia Lego, my. And yes, this is the origin of the toy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> my. Remove the my and just say the word. Dialego. Dialogue. Dialogue. He dialogued with them. That's where the word comes from, is to reason with someone. This suggests it wasn't just a lecture. Paul wasn't just standing up and, or sitting, as a teacher would do, and just lecture to them forever. He would back and forth. He's reasoning with them. And, you know, those good, good Jews had their portable scrolls, and they were whipping out their scrolls out of their pockets and unfolding them. No, there was probably one set of scrolls, and the rabbis there are probably consulting with it and listening to him and saying, well, here's what it says. Verse 3, 
explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer and to rise from the dead. Remember the word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ was not Jesus' last name. His name was probably Jesus bar Joseph. He's a son of Joseph. But we call him Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. So he's talking about that the Messiah had to suffer. And then said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah. So the word explaining. So I've talked about the word reasoned, which is dialogue. dialogue. The word explaining. We actually looked at this word before. The anoigo. We talked about this word when we were discussing Lydia. Because it said that, Lydia, that God opened Lydia's heart. And we said there's a difference between the word anoigo, which means to just simply open something, and dianoigo means to kick something open. To open wide is the actual meaning. So we have, he, for three Sabbath days, he dialogued with them from the Old Testament. He didn't have a New Testament with him. Oh gee, it hadn't been written yet. He hasn't even written 1 Thessalonians yet, for that matter. So he's dialoguing with them from the Old Testament and opening wide and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So, I thought, because I can, and because you're a captive audience, you can always get up and leave if you don't like this part, but that's, my question for you is, if you wanted to talk to a Jewish person, you don't use the New Testament to talk to them at first. You would do what Paul did. You would reason from the scriptures, the Old Testament. So where do you start? How do you reason with someone about the Messiah using the Old Testament? So I came up with a few things, um, cobbled together. This is not all original, so I'm not going to claim it, but here's one method. And I'll just give you some verses. You can write them down, put them in the back of your Bible. <coughs> Lift them up yourself. Obviously, a good place to start is Isaiah. By the way, wonderful exposition last week. Thank you, Tom. Um, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, where it says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ears too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, and he will not hear you. So you're showing the need. The separation from God is the iniquities. And maybe you turn to Leviticus 19. Be ye holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Again, emphasizing the separation. You can then turn to Isaiah 64, verse 6. 
where it says, all of us have become unclean and our righteousness, our righteous acts are as filthy rags. And it goes on from there. You can then go to Leviticus 17, 10 and 11, where it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You cannot cover the sins unless there is some sacrifice, some death. Then, of course, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Um, <clears throat> that's the very famous section of Isaiah talking about, um, you know, he bore our griefs. And uh, we, we, we were familiar with the phrase, the, the terms. But especially verse 53, 6, where it says, The Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. So you start with the iniquity, is separating us from God. And then you show it's been placed on him who is suffering on your behalf. And then you can go to Psalm 22, where it describes the crucifixion in some pretty amazing predictive detail. That's one way. There's probably many others. But it's a simple way. You can even do this exercise yourself, just in one, say, one morning this week or whatever, just kind of read through these passages and say, wow, is this what Paul was doing? Most likely. He was dialoguing with them. He was reasoning with them. He was opening the scriptures wide, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And what we don't see here is he probably... Um, trumped it all by saying, and I met Christ on the road to, Matt, to Damascus, risen. Kind of hard to um, discount that type of testimony. He says, I am standing here, a trained Pharisee. I studied under the greats, and this is what I believe. And here's where the scripture says, Here's where it says, and you must accept this or not. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded. That is a Greek word that means, or that, is, that is called, it's the Greek word pytho, P-E-I-T-H-O. They were persuaded, they were talked into. <coughs> they were, I don't know, convinced. And says, some of them, meaning the Jews, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many, not a couple, not a few, but a great many devout Greeks. Which meant that it wasn't just on the Sabbath in the synagogue where he was teaching and preaching. He was talking to the Greeks as well. And not a few of the leading women. I think it's fascinating that Paul intentionally includes the women in these passages. Again, cutting back to the whole, the whole mythology that Paul was anti-women, he celebrates this evidently, openly. But the Jews were jealous, the ones who didn't believe. And literally the word uh, jealous is the word Z-E-A-L-O-U-S, zealous. Zelo, to boil, to be passionate, 
So jealous and zealous are actually the same Greek word, depending you translate it differently, depending on the context. So you could have Simon the Jealous was also Simon the Zealot. So it's the same word. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, the word wicked men is translated in the King James as lewd men of a baser sort. <laughs> oh, the Shakespearean way of insulting people. <laughs> you are a lewd men of baser sort. They're like, what? what? Is that good? <laughs> no, it's not. And A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, translated very simply, bums. <laughs> in his word pictures of the New Testament. He comes along and says, there's this Greek word, blah, blah, blah. Says, basically, it means they were bums. <coughs> a little bit of Southern humor in his part. Well, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. We go, poor Jason. Who's he? We have no idea. We know that Jason is a Greek name. Its Hebrew offshoots are everything from Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. Uh, there are other Hebrew variations of that word, but the Greek word typically, the Greek name is typically Jason. So it's likely that he was a Jew. It's possible he was a Greek, we don't know. But the mob attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out in the crowd. So that suggests that maybe Paul and Silas were staying at Jason's house. We don't know that. But, verse 6, they couldn't find him. I mean, pretty much they broke down the door and searched the house and then dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities. The dragging is not just simply, oh, a nice little pull. I mean, it's like grabbing him by the heels, dragging him through the streets. This is, they were, they were pretty violent with these guys. And they shouted, these men have turned the world upside down. William Barclay translated it as that these men have upset the civilized world. F.F. Bruce translated it as these men have subverted the whole world. The NIV translates it as these men have caused trouble all over the world. Bottom line is they are having an impact and they're claiming that Paul and Silas and these converts are upsetting the entire world? This is just Thessalonica. Maybe some of the uh, stories of Philippi have finally made its way over because he's been there for a month. There could have been some folks along the uh, Ignatian Way that said, yeah, oh, that's the, oh man, he caused trouble. He was thrown in jail. <gasps> he was? I need to look that up on Instagram. See if there's a picture of it. <coughs> the word has come out. These men are turning the world upside down. And they've come here. And Jason welcomed them. He received them. And they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king. And the people in the city authorities were very disturbed when they heard these things. And they made Jason pay bond. Uh, for whatever reason, I had missed this verse. I, I read this and went, what? I don't remember studying this. 
Um, they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, and they let him go. The suggestion being is he had to post a monetary bond that Paul and Silas would no longer create trouble. That they would get out of town, and then Jason would get his money back. Because they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they took the next best thing, the man who's harboring those horrible guys, and forcing him to pay a fine or a bond to ensure that they leave town. That's really pressure. I mean, think of the pressure. Let's say you, uh, uh, let's, let's put ourselves in one of our persecuted countries. Not the worst, but a, a difficult place. And the authorities come to your house and say, um, you brought Tom Blanchard into town and he's making trouble. We know his ilk. And you have to pay $25,000 and get him out of town. Now, you might be a man of means, but $25,000 isn't something you carry around in your pocket. And so you have to go to Tom and say, hey, buddy, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, man, but I can't afford this. Could you go away for a week or two or something? Just, you know, here's a ticket. <laughs> get, get out of town. <laughs> you know? And I mean, seriously, this is the pressure the government was putting on the hosts. That's an interesting dynamic. And you can imagine Paul's care, concern. He's probably going, yeah, um, maybe my time here is up. But you'll notice the next verse. He left someone behind. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away. Who's still there? Timothy. There were four of them in Philippi. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Luke stays behind in Philippi. They asked Paul and Silas to leave, and there's one still there, Timothy. Still ministering quietly in the church. He's the young guy. He might even said, you know, while we're here, you know, see if you can make sure you keep the, keep the, uh, the spirits up. And it may also be why the book of 1 Thessalonians, the letter was written so soon. As he had to leave so quickly and things were just starting to gain momentum, but there were trouble. There was trouble and so he then wrote to them very soon, probably within a month or so from what we can gather. <coughs> but they sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Berea, you can see on the map, it's 50 miles away, so that's a long walk, and you had to start in the middle of the night. So it's maybe a two-day journey um, to get there. They did not go to Pella, which is the next stop on the Ignatian Way. They start turning south. They're going towards Athens. So it's interesting that Paul chose not to continue toward Rome, but he decided he needed to go south toward Athens. And we see by the end of the passage that that's where he ends up. So they end up in Berea. 
and I've run out of time. Oh my goodness. We have a lot to talk about Berea. I just can't gloss over these people. Um, Quick question? Yes. When he says uh, about Jason, verse 7, do not take against the decrees of Caesar, say that there's another King Jesus. Do we know any idea what that's involved? The idea of Jesus being King, but yes. Well, other than the fact that um, it had been the decree that the Caesars were considered gods, and you had, can have no king but Caesar. So that may be that. That's the tension. You know, we have no king but Caesar. Wasn't that the, the claim against Jesus? Because he was supposed to be the king of the Jews. And so this whole thing is that more than likely, in Paul's exclamation, uh, uh, explanations to them, he's, he's the Messiah, which means mm -hmm. he's the king. He's, the king. The he's Lord. Yeah. And we must bow to him and to his will and to his leading and they're saying they can use that against them because he wasn't saying don't follow Caesar never said that but he says you must follow here so we and that tension stays throughout all of Paul's writings but that's a good point that's a good point to bring up so yeah he did run out of time um We'll pick this up as, and then we'll move, use this as kind of our launch into First um, uh, and Second Thessalonians, which will take us 25 months. <laughs> no, it's, they're fairly short. In fact, it was interesting, I, I bought the commentary from Chuck Swindoll on First and Second Thessalonians, and it was only this wide. I went, wait. <laughs> I mean, oh, he must have only done, you know, eight or 10 sermons on this. Because it's a short book, but there's so much in it that will be very fascinating because it has other implications if you think of the rest of the New Testament and how early it was written and the, the things he was fighting against in the very early foundation of the church. Fascinating. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time today. Huh. Kind of amazing. We start digging into the, the Word and it just opens like a flower and then opens again, and then opens again, and then opens again. We find so much depth and breadth and wealth and joy in looking at your word. Thank you for this opportunity, and bless us as we move into our time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.